All right, hey, we're pleased to be joined by Joe Cook from Inside Texas, part of the On3 Network. And Joe, it's been a while since we've seen you too long, really. Saw you at SEC Media Days, and brings a smile to my face to see you're a fellow mustache brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying <laughs> off seasons time for experiments, right? But yeah, I was in I was in your neck of the woods, went to Atlanta. I'm excited to hopefully you'll make it to Dallas and check out that Omni and uh, everything the Metroplex provides. And really looking forward to it. Should be fun to see Sark talking with with coaches like Lane and uh, even uh, Kalen DeBoer. You know Brian Kelly. Um, I'm I'm excited, and uh, it's just part of the building excitement for Texas first year in the SEC. Right, and it, it, obviously it's been a long time coming, Joe. I mean, again, we saw you at SEC Media Days, even though Texas was still in the Big 12. So uh, I can only imagine, and we were just talking off air, just the excitement within the fan base. What do you think is uh, something that that maybe Texas fans are, are most excited about coming into the SEC for the first time, playing that, that full SEC slate? Instead of teams like Kansas State and BYU coming to town, Florida and Georgia are coming to town. I think it, it just starts with that. And, hey, Kansas State's been a good team in the Big 12 for a while. They won the Big 12, I think, uh, in 2022. So it, it's not like they're a slouch of a program, uh, but they're not the name brands that Georgia and, and Florida are. And, you know, going to playing Oklahoma and Dallas with SEC logos on the field, getting that Texas A&M rivalry back. I think it's just the a, a lot of it is the helmets on the field that are going to be showing up. Um, and the programs attached to them, uh, that's going to be part of the excitement for for the Longhorns and not having to, you know, maybe face a, a team like Iowa State or uh, a team like, you know, even Oklahoma State, who in the week leading up, there is uh, an Iowa State left guard who said he prepares as hard as uh, he prepares for the Texas game with a fervor like how he prepares for the Iowa game. Texas didn't have that level of disdain for Iowa State. West Virginia tried to become a rival for some reason uh, during the first couple of years of their membership of the Big 12. It, it sounds pompous, but teams liked beating up on Texas, and it was a very achievable task. Uh, but now, you know, with when you think of the SEC, every team's capable of beating up on the other. You still have rivalries, uh, but Texas is looking forward to uh, big, big brands um, like Georgia and Florida, you know, even Kentucky, when you get to the quality football program they become and the basketball program they'll bring with them in, in that front coming to the Moody Center, they're excited to see the name brands of college athletics headed to Austin. Yeah, no doubt. And, and hey, I got to give you credit, Joe, because at Media Days, we asked you, you know, should Texas go into Tuscaloosa and come out a winner? Would they make the college football playoff? And you predicted if they did that, that they would, and obviously they did. And not, not only did they beat Alabama, quite frankly, they whooped them in, in Tuscaloosa. So uh, credit to you for that. But I don't know. You you tell me. It, what is the sense of how the season ended? It was it was it a missed opportunity? Because I feel like, you know, I thought Texas. I I thought they beat Washington, and and quite frankly. I thought Alabama would beat Michigan, so that goes to show what I know. But had, had it been a rematch, you know, Texas would have had certainly some confidence that they could win a, a national championship. Is there any sense that, man, we we missed a shot there, or is it more, hey, we reached the college football playoff, we're on the rise, we just we we 
you know, I'm, I'm sure the, the main goal was to win the Big 12. They accomplished that before heading into the SEC. Is it is there any sense that of a missed opportunity? Is it more is it more about this is a program seriously on the rise under Steve Sarkeesian? You know, from I think what was it December third to December thirty first, it's all right. You know, they made it. You know, they're in the playoff. They're in the Sugar Bowl. And then once the calendar turns to January first, you want to win. You want to be playing next Monday after that. And I think Texas fumbled the ball twice uh, during that playoff game and on good drives where they had chances to score and they lost by six points. Um, credit, of course, goes to Michael Penix playing one of the games of his life. I've been covering Texas since 2016, and I think that game that Penix put together is only rivaled by a game Joe Burrow put together in Austin in 2019. So sometimes you go against a supernova football player who has the game of his life, and we saw he couldn't replicate the performance next week against Michigan. So Texas, of course, was happy and ecstatic to be in the last iteration that we know of of the four-team playoff, but once you make it, you want to win it. Um, they probably, you know, Michigan was going to be a tough out no matter who they played uh, in the next round. I, I think you're right. They would have felt pretty good about facing Alabama again because as much as Jalen Milrow developed over the course of the season, there were still some aspects of Jalen Milrow that were keeping the, the tied offense, you know, a little bit back. Uh, so I think they would have been really confident. Alabama would have been confident, of course, as well. It would have made for a fun game in Houston, uh, but they never got there. Uh, now the goal for them, of course, in, in the expanded 12-team playoff is to be in that playoff pretty much on a yearly basis. I think that's what their expectation is this year. They want to compete for the SEC, obviously, but Georgia and Ole Miss and LSU and Alabama still, and you know even Oklahoma and Texas A&M are going to want to say something about that. But uh, this is a year for them where they believe they can really compete for the title. If they get over 10.5 wins like the the number seems to be, well, that's that puts you in great territory uh, to be in Atlanta. Uh, but making the playoff uh, this past year, great achievement, but they want that to continue going forward. And what's your confidence level in Steve Sarkeesian to actually get that done? with? And I'm talking win a national championship, and it doesn't necessarily have to be next season or anything like that. But like you said, the, the over-under total is, is one of the highest in the country. Just had a friend of the show, Jake Wimberly, on, and, and his model has got, I don't know if you saw this, but Texas 12-0, and the only team, according to his analytics, that is projected to go undefeated in the SEC. So so clearly they got the roster, they got the schedule. We know Sarkeesian is an elite recruiter. Texas has got all the advantages in the world, arguably the best NIL game out there, which is, I don't, you know, people say that like it's a dirty thing. I, I love it. I mean, I, it's all within the rules, so more power to him. So He's got everything he needs to win it all, but obviously he's never done that as a head coach. What's your confidence level that Steve Sarkeesian can actually get that done in Austin? Hey, Steve Sarkeesian had never won 10 games or a conference championship until last year, so we're having this conver the same conversation a year ago. We're talking about that, and he goes and gets it done. I think there's a lot of confidence that that's possible. It's going to be tougher than ever having to win maybe three or four games in order to do it. Uh, but there's confidence in the fact with the recruiting, the roster that he has, he's got three straight top six classes, including a number five and a number three group in the 2022 and 2023 classes. It was just barely beaten by Miami, uh, I think, in on threes rankings in the 2024 cycle. Portal and, and NIL, he's made great use of that. Lane Kiffin may have signed the best class, 
uh, as far as you know quality and even numbers. Texas didn't take a ton of players in the portal, but they addressed major needs, whether it was at wide receiver, defensive tackle, or even on the edge. So uh, you look at the roster, the quarterback situation, the offense, you know, Steve Sarkeesian's ability to call an offense, the continuity among the coaching staff. They're going to have the same coordinators again this upcoming season for the fourth year in a row. And there's a lot of faith that he can get it done. Um, as long as Steve Sarkeesian's calling plays, quarterbacks and wide receivers are probably going to like playing that offense, and it's probably going to be a pretty good one. Uh, the defense, it, it has questions this upcoming season, including up the middle, whether that's at tackle, linebacker, or even at safety. Uh, but at the, at the same time, there's been enough recruiting uh, and portal wins to where there's some young prospects that have a lot of promise. So I think everybody's kind of looking at, at Sark and seeing that extension and seeing it as something that's been uh, rightfully deserved and that he'll, of course, have to – the expectations are a lot higher now that he's entered some extremely elite salary company, but uh, the expectation also is that he'll he'll be able to do it and he set himself up extremely well to continue a really successful run. Well, so was there any panic at all in Austin when Nick Saban retired? Because naturally everybody, you know, they're looking at Sarkeesian, Kiffin, Dan Lanning, but I, I think – at the top of most of those people's list is Sarkeesian given his ties to Alabama. And, and I realize, you know, I, I don't think he really gave it any consideration whatsoever, but was there any immediate panic as soon as Dick Saban retired that, oh my goodness, with all this momentum could be gone like that if he leaves? You know, over the course of December, everybody that we talked to at Inside Texas was pretty confident something was going to get done. Uh, they knew it would take maybe till the end of the season after the season was over for something to take place. But there was a sense that Texas wanted Sarkeesian to stay in Austin and Sark and his his family and everybody who's been close with him likes being in Austin. And then Saban retired. And that probably didn't really scare Texas as much as it uh, gave him a little bit more urgency and maybe <laughs> resulted in a few more dollars for Sarkeesian as a result. So I don't think there was any fear that Sark was going to, you know, leave in the middle of the night like Brian Kelly did for for LSU. <laughs> uh but at the same time, you know, they they knew that he had connections to Alabama and that Nick Saban and the the even just the city of Tuscaloosa was a big deal and a big step and a big place in his career. But at the same time, we see what the portal does to rosters, even what it did to Alabama's roster. Uh, losing a, a great immediate impact player like Caleb Downs and even losing someone who's going to be there for the future uh, in, in Julian Sayan. Why would he want to leave a, a stacked roster at Texas and go restart at Alabama when they're in kind of at this juncture without Saban there, comparable situation. So um, like I said, there was urgency, and I think Saban retiring maybe increased that urgency uh, but, you know, similar applies with Oregon and Dan Lanning. They didn't want to lose him. He's in a good situation. They they have money to be able to give to him, and they he earned it. Uh, same goes with Mike Norvell. Florida State, you know, snubbed from the playoff, wins the ACC in a great situation. They're going to reward him. Kalen DeBoer, a little bit different. That roster up in Washington was about to lose a bunch of fifth- and sixth-year players, including their quarterback, and their top three receivers who made that thing go, uh, they were about. To, it, it was about to be a step down for him. So when, when, uh, of course, when a program like Alabama comes calling and the resources that Nick Saban has managed to not only cultivate but marshal is available to you after starting your career at an NAIA school in South Dakota, 
you're probably going to take that call. But when you're at Texas, when you're at Oregon, when you're at a Florida state that seems serious about being the best football program in a conference that wants to leave, it, it, you're not going to be able to, to out, outshine those guys, but it is going to uh, cause maybe people you're bidding against to act a little bit more urgently. And I think that's what happened with Texas and Sarkeesian. Yeah. In your opinion, has Quinn Ewers, has he even scratched the surface of what he can be uh, there in Austin? And is it fair to even wonder if he's even better this upcoming season? But given the losses, I, I know they've, they've really, uh, you know, hit, hit, hit it in the transfer portal to kind of replace a lot of the departures. But even still, a lot of those guys, it may not be like day one as good you know it may take half a season but is it fair to wonder that even if Quinn Ewers is better he could have similar style production given that uh there, there's a lot of transition around him yeah there's an expectation that Quinn Ewers takes a step up um and and I think it's not only just in on-field play uh but in in leadership and you saw him in that Oklahoma State game granted against a pretty overmatched defense just slice and dice the Cowboys uh, through the air in Arlington. And there were other moments where he had some great games, you know, at, at Alabama, he played one of his, the best games of his career. The thing is that there are times when he can get slightly careless with the football. He's much better at it now than he was as a red shirt freshman, but it still happens. The other questions is durability back to back seasons. He missed multiple games and the backup quarterback had to play. He still recorded a lot of great stats this season. Uh, I think over 3,300 or over 3,000 yards. And, you know, if he had decided to declare for the draft, probably not going any later than day two. And a lot of that's still on potential. Uh, but he's got to show durability. And yeah, you can't account for Dallas Turner falling with all his weight on your shoulder. And you can't account for, you know, smacking your shoulder while you're trying to reach for a football. Uh, sometimes that's just a sport. Uh, but at the same time, miss games or miss games, and there's the, the I, Texas would be better served, and Quinn as well if he's able to stay in those games, show a, an element of uh, development uh, over the course of you know his what'll be his fourth college football season, his third in the offense, and help lead Texas into the SEC where they're going to need him to lead an offense that scores a lot of points against. Oklahoma, Michigan, of course, in week two, Georgia when they show up in Austin, and even some of the better defenses like, you know, Mark Stoops isn't going to run a bad defense. Um, you know, the Arkansas has some quality coordinators, even if they may not have the exact talent they need. Uh, Texas A&M is going to want to beat the beat Texas, and Mike Elko is going to want to make a statement as a defensive coach against an offensive opponent in his first year in that rivalry returning. So, there's a lot of opportunity available for Quinn Ewers to have the type of season where he becomes talked about like someone like J.J. McCarthy or uh, maybe maybe not exactly Drake May, but you know these these first round guys who are built off of successful season over successful season and development that help lead their team to team wide success. Now, Joe, I don't know if you saw this. It was about a week ago, but uh, Bill Connolly from ESPN, he, he puts out annually his uh, total returning production figures. And Texas was number two in the entire SEC. Um, and now I believe the way he's Bill Connolly's doing it this year, is he's, he is factoring in transfers. So got to make that little caveat there. But did that surprise you at all, that, that Texas is second leading uh, returner of production across the entire SEC? Because usually what this statistic means, it doesn't necessarily mean you got the second best team, but if you're in that top half, 
you can expect improvement, which <laughs> of team that just won its conference and went to the college football playoff, if we're talking improvement, maybe, uh, you know, Texas really is a, a national championship type contender. Last year, I think they were second in the Big 12 in returning production, and they were only second to Kansas, who lost nobody and I think was number two in returning production overall. So, um, And that's when you factor in they had a transfer like Adonai Mitchell, who accounted for a lot of uh, the, the touchdowns through the air this year. Makes a lot of sense. Quinn Ewers is coming back. Um, there are three wide receiver transfers that is, that's replacing starters like uh, Xavier Worthy, Adonai Mitchell, Jordan Whittington. All were productive at their most recent stops. Isaiah Bond, obviously, at Bama. Matthew Golden at Houston. Silas Bolden at Oregon State. All were extremely productive. So you're not losing a ton as far as wide receiver production, like as as number-for-number basis. Then you also throw in Amari Nyblak, who a little bit of a different player than Jatavian Sanders, but a receiving threat nonetheless. They lose in a 1,000-yard rusher in Jonathan Brooks, uh, but they have a former five-star there waiting behind them in C.J. Baxter and also Jaden Blue, who got a lot of run over the course of last season. And they returned four of five starters on the offensive line. The only guy they're losing is Christian Jones, a six-year senior who's going to be drafted at some point, probably in day three. But their left tackle, Kelvin Banks, is back. Fifth-year senior Jake Majors is at center. Uh, returning starter uh, D.J. Campbell at right guard. And then Hayden Connor plays left guard, but he could move around. And in 2022, during that uh, that recruiting class, Texas added seven offensive linemen. So those guys are coming into age. They're either going to be juniors or redshirt sophomores, and they're going to have opportunities to maybe find a spot in that offensive line, maybe unseat some guys in that offensive line. That's a lot of guys coming back on that infrastructure of that offense. And then the areas where you lost people, namely at wide receiver and tight end, you make these great portal additions again, number for number, help uh, in that uh, quarter or help in the returning production category. The 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 curious thing, and I think you know this, is that Texas A and M is is first in the SEC, <laughs> I think, in returning production, and we know that that is a little bit based off of uh, Connor Connor Wegman coming back, but also they had to hit the portal really hard. Um, so that that just shows uh, not to denigrate Texas A and portals additions because they did pick up a lot of pieces that they needed after Jimbo got fired. Uh, but it does show that returning production, would would you take Texas roster? Would you take A&M's right now? Both are great. Both are probably top 20, maybe top 15 in the country. Uh, but returning production for Texas is a little bit different than the returning production for A&M, just as a comparison between two schools that have a little bit to do with each other. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned, obviously, returning production on the field, production in terms of, obviously, head coach and coordinators, but one loss this offseason, defensive line coach Bo Davis. How big of a blow do you think that is to Texas? Because that guy is just – I mean, he, he is arguably the best defensive line coach in the country. You know, what he did at Texas was, was remarkable. He's been all over the SEC, and I'm sure – LSU paid a, a hefty price to, to bring him to Baton Rouge. How big of a blow to Sark's coaching staff was that? Definitely a big loss for Texas. Everybody remembers the the bus rant in 2021, <laughs> where you know he's he's telling people to get into the portal after losing after they lost. I think it was 33-7 at Iowa State. Really bad game. Made me never want to go want to go back to Ames, <laughs> but uh, I saw 
beautiful Iowa this past year during (laughs) this season. But a lot of Texas cultural turnaround, which has to happen after a five and seven season, was credited to Bo just telling people to nut up. And the funny thing is, even after that game, I think they lost two more. Like, I think they had to go. They, they, I think the Kansas loss may have happened after that. Um, and then the loss to West Virginia happened after that. But then you see Texas bring in basically like, I think half of a roster full of new guys. And not only is that the recruiting class, that's the portal, but that illustrates that there was half the roster that didn't really want to be there and one part of it. So Bo Davis, obviously Texas goes eight and five in, in 2022, making a uh, three game improvement. And then you see what happened this past year. Bo Davis gets a lot of credit for that just culturally. On field, obviously, Tavon, you, in, in 2022, Keandre Coburn and Moro Ojimo get drafted, two defensive tackles playing alongside each other. And then this year, Tavondre Sweat and Byron Murphy, two guys who may both be first round picks. Both were All-Americans. Sweat was the Outland Trophy winner. They owe a lot of their development, of course, to Bo Davis. That it's not a, he's not an easy coach to replace. And he's been at and he was tough to replace the other time he was at Texas and decided to leave. I think it was for I think it was for Alabama then. So he's a valuable piece. Um there's some argument that maybe Texas could have done more on the recruiting trail under Bo Davis. Um, and uh, some of that was even uh, manifested when uh, it kind of kind of backwards thinking here. But when Bo Davis left, they lost a, a, a defensive tackle signee. Uh, that meant that over the last two classes, Texas signed three defensive tackles. And that's not going to work in the league that they're going into. It's why they had to make a portal addition at defensive tackle. So he recruited really well. But I think there's an idea that he there could, there's a higher ceiling for defensive line recruiting. Um, that's going to be tough for Kenny Baker, the new defensive tackles coach, defensive line coach who came over from the Miami Dolphins. Jort, uh, kind of a guy who's been all around that. That there's a rectangle. I think of Atlanta, Chattanooga, maybe Huntsville, and then uh, Birmingham, something like that. I need to get a little bit more familiar with that geography now that we're in the SEC. But basically a guy who's lived in that area, coached in that area for his whole life. Uh, they hope that maybe he can mine some of his re- his connections and resources, both in Georgia, but maybe as well in Mississippi and Alabama, to where there are a lot of large defensive tackles worth recruiting to Texas and help the Longhorns in, in that respect. But he's also got big shoes to fill in on-field coaching. It's going to be tough. Uh, and I guess you could say re- the returns are not totally known yet. I think this recruiting class and this upcoming season are going to say a lot. Uh, but at this point, I would call Bo Davis a, a significant loss for Texas, not only culturally, but you know, results-wise, both on the field and in recruiting. Now, I realize uh, transfer portal, You know, there's another window upcoming, but – uh, I, I think that, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the number is eight incoming transfers they've added, and it, it's a consensus top ten class. While you know other people bring in twenty or thirty transfers, so Texas is clearly, and they're in a position to do this, but they're bringing in quality, not quantity. Is there one or two transfers that's that stand out that you anticipate will have a bigger impact than in, than maybe some of the others? Yeah, I mean, I obviously talked about the receivers. You know, Golden and, and Bond, those are going to be 1A, 1B guys at receiver. Uh, Nye Black, up, of course, at tight end. He's I mean, If he's not a starter, he's going to be featured 
extremely often. But on the defensive side, I think one of the biggest additions they made was Andrew Makuba. Uh, he's a all-ACC player from Clemson who went to high school in the Austin area, still decided to go to Clemson, even with Texas under the old Tom Herman staff pursuing him, entered the portal after the season, uh, made a pretty quick decision to, to get to Texas, uh, and is a very versatile piece. Um, he, he's probably going to end up playing safety. Uh, he could end up playing nickel, which right now is occupied by excuse me, fifth-year senior Jade Barron. Uh, but he could do safety. He could do either safety spot, and he could play nickel as well. And that's a position where, that Texas had some struggles at last year. They ended up playing a, a walk-on turned scholarship player named Michael Taft there. And while he's great, there's a reason he started his career as a walk-on. He knows where to be, but you know, compared to some of the other guys on the roster, not as fast as getting there. It's just plain and simple. It has nothing to do uh, with anything as far as except for athletic ability. Andrew McCuba knows how to get there and can get there really quickly. Uh, they also have a, a sophomore in Derek Williams, a, a former five-star from Louisiana that they took from LSU along with Arch Manning in that 2023 class. You saw a lot of run during the, the latter portion of the season and probably is going to be a starter. So uh, that addition in the secondary of, of Andrew Makuba, I think is one that may have flown a little bit under the radar because it was one of the earlier ones. It was announced during the, the first signing day. So any transfers that take place then are often overshadowed by look at this recruiting class and oh, <laughs> we got this, this five-star and this great player. Uh, but that's one that's probably going to be instant impact uh, on the defensive side of the ball for Texas and improve an area that needed big-time improvement, as we, of course, saw during the Sugar Bowl when they just couldn't stop Michael Penix through the air. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I realize uh, you know there's, there's no wrong answer here, Joe, but Oklahoma – you know, let's take that off the table. I realize what a great, just one of the best rivalries in all of sports. And I, I do want to ask you about AM in just a second. So let's let's take that one off the page as well. But if we're we're looking past Oklahoma, we're looking past AM, is there another one game that stands out on the SEC schedule that that these Texas fans are more excited about than any other? If you're looking at just the 2024 schedule. It's, of course, Georgia, you know, the number one team in the country coming to town. Uh, it's unfortunate for a lot of people who may want to get to that game that the uh, Formula One race is heading <laughs> to Austin that same weekend. Uh, and I've made this joke a couple of times. If you haven't gotten your hotel yet, you're probably not going to get one. And I even joked with the the on three side at Georgia, like, hey, guys, like you better book this now. It's like, ah, don't worry. We got an RV coming. I'm like, OK, that's so that's how y'all. Y'all operate, yep. <laughs> but it's it's definitely that Georgia game when you have uh, a program running at, at peak efficiency like Kirby Smart and Georgia have heading to Austin. That's the thing. The reason Texas schedules all these premier out of conference games is going back to the point I made earlier. There weren't name brands coming to Austin as part as far as conference play goes. Now in conference play, the Georgia Bulldogs are heading to Austin, Texas to play the Texas Longhorns. Like that's what Texas fans have wanted. It features two great head coaches battling each other on, you know, their respective sides of the ball. Georgia's stacked roster, Texas roster, which is extremely strong right now. Great quarterbacks in Carson Beck and Quinn Ewers. Uh, and just it, it's going to be a battle. Um, the Longhorns have done pretty well, maybe not wins and losses wise, uh, playing these premier home games against big non-conference opponent, but they always show up. 
um, whether it be LSU in 19, uh, 2021. Uh, no, they went to Arkansas. So, and then, so LSU in 19, Bama in 22 against Bryce Young. Um, and then, you know, this upcoming season when they have Georgia coming to town, that's the big one. Uh, but going forward in the SEC, if you ask a lot of older Longhorn fans, I don't know if they're excited, but they're looking forward to the opportunity to beat Arkansas. Uh, if you go back into the you know 60s, 70s, and uh, even in, into the 80s, Arkansas and Texas were huge rivals, and not just because they're they border each other, but because they were quality programs. I mean, game of the century in in 1969 with President Johnson there, and there's a great, uh, uh, excuse me, Pre- President Nixon there. Yeah, uh, great 30 for 30 on that one and w- about how uh, President Nixon decided to call that game's winner the national champion <laughs> instead of a quality Penn State team uh, in, in during that season. Still rubbed some people the wrong way up in Happy Valley. But still, you know, a lot of great rivalry games, Darrell Royal, Frank Broyles, you know, Mac Brown heading into – the and, and even he was upset a couple times by Arkansas. And there is a level of hatred that Arkansas fans have for Texas that most people kind of my age, maybe even your age, don't understand because once Arkansas left the Southwest Conference for the SEC, they only played a handful of times. It's why Brett Bielema in twenty fourteen called beating the dog out of Texas in that bowl game borderline erotic. To beat Texas in a way that was really, you know, pretty pretty significant you know to to kneel on the on the two yard line you know three times in a row at the end of the game is a very for me that's a very fulfilling moment um borderline erotic i mean it's it's really uh, so i know arkansas fans are looking forward to that one they want to make 2021 where they basically beat texas 41 to 20 and dominated every aspect a recurring theme if you ask texas fans they would probably rank arkansas as far as who's going to be on the future schedule third in that order of rivals between behind Oklahoma and Texas A&M. But they still like beating Arkansas and being able to hold that over a lot of people who, you know, DFW sends a lot of people to Arkansas now, not just athletics-wise, but school-wise. The, the Jerry Jones factor, of course, is also there. Um, so it's I think it's Arkansas. And then after that, I, I don't think you can put your finger on a specific team, uh, just the name brands that are coming in. Uh, not just for football, but you get Kentuckys and t- Tennessee and Rick Barnes for basketball. Um, and then you get, you know, the baseball quality, which I think Texas fans who who love their baseball head to the dish, they're going to be excited to see, you know, this constant stream of quality program after quality program who, who basically always live in the top 25 heading to Austin in the spring weekends. Yeah. Well, I can't let you out of here without asking you a final thing about A&M and, and we're finally getting that game back. And I, I have no allegiances to Texas or Texas A&M. I'm not from the state or anything, but I I have missed this game so dearly. So I, I can't even imagine what it's like being in that state and, and just, you know, 10 plus years of bickering online. And it's finally going to come down to the field, college station to end the regular season. But who, who do you think will have more pressure, Joey, in that game? Is it Texas, who's got, you know, all these wild aspirations? And, you know, by all accounts, you know, they should be a playoff team. Whereas A&M, I know they're pretty fired up about the Mike Elko era, but if they were to win 10 games this year, I mean, they'd be over the moon, I feel like. Whereas if Texas won 10, 
I think it, it almost would be a disappointment. So who do you think will have more pressure when they meet on the field? Will it be Texas or will it be A&M to, to defend the, the home field? You know, looking at it in the last week of February, uh, you know, this far ahead of the season, I think it's you can it, it's safe to say Texas at this point because we know what Texas expectations are, where they think they're going to be, what and and what Sarkeesian has going uh, roster wise, quarterback wise, all that. But A and M's got a pretty easy schedule. Like they don't draw any. Texas is their biggest challenge, and they get them at home in a rivalry game that everybody within two hours who wears maroon is going to try to go to. Uh, so, and, and, and so th- I think that right now it's Texas, but I think like you mentioned, and like I kind of brought up with the schedule, that could be a game where there's a spot in the playoff on the line. Um, and neither head coach wants to hear it from their, uh, from their constituency that, you know, why didn't she beat their rival, especially Sark, who's now one and two against Oklahoma. But if a spot in the playoffs on the line, there's going to be a considerable amount of pressure on Mike Elko, uh, especially when you think about the mental dynamic of that SEC move. Even Ross Bjork himself, in a little bit of a floundering moment, said, we joined the SEC expecting to be the only SEC brand in Texas. If Mike Elko lets Texas not only beat him, but walk into new Kyle Field with probably 110,000 people at night on Thanksgiving weekend... There's not going to be a lot of Aggies who are very pleased with that outcome. So um, there's pressure on both. There's pressure on every head coach in every game. Uh, but rivalry-wise, there, there's definitely going to be uh, pressure on both. Could be increased because of the spot in the playoff. And maybe for one of these teams, a spot in Atlanta on the line. But looking at it from from right here in, in February, I, I think it's safe to say that Sarkeesian has the uh, higher pressure just because of the current level of expectations in Austin. Oh, yeah. And one other thing, I apologize, but uh, I, I did see the Texas AD said, you know, that he would he would prefer that game, I guess, move to Thursday. Is, is that something is that a consensus among the fans or what's your thoughts on that? It varies person to person uh, towards the end. It was on Thanksgiving night. Um, it's I, I like it when it's on the day after I, I like the Black Friday matchup because um, it allows everybody to go do Thanksgiving and then get to whatever city they need to. The next day, I, I I know I've researched this, but I don't know off the top of my head how often it's been on that Saturday. And I know that's rivalry Saturday, but they've liked having it uh, during the day, at least if it's not going to be on Thanksgiving night. Are you going to go against the game up at Michigan and Ohio State? Are you going to try to go up against the, the Iron Bowl? Um, having it on Thanksgiving, it, it, this year, it's going to draw no matter what as far as college football fans go. Um, even with the Egg Bowl going on, and I know that's a big game, but I, to be fair, I think that the return of a Texas versus Texas A&M rivalry will get a little bit more attention in the national college football consciousness. But like, I, I don't know what um, what the the future plan is because I know with Texas A&M, they like playing LSU on Thanksgiving, and LSU wants nothing to do with that and likes playing it on <laughs> Saturday night. So, um, and I think there's even a, an aspect of the schedule right now to where they can flex that game. I don't think it's, I think it's written in, in marker, but it can, whiteout can be put over it and they can change it this year. I, I don't know that for sure, but I don't remember it being something completely set in stone. Um, so I, I'm, I'm okay with the idea of Thanksgiving, especially uh, this year, I guess. 
I think in future years, you're going to see college football try to move away from that as best they can, just because they know you're competing with the Cowboys. And that's another Texas consideration. People, there are some people who are going to watch the Cowboys no matter what over the Longhorns and the Aggies. You're still competing with whoever the Lions play. And now you're competing with a Thursday night game that I bet the Egg Bowl's ratings have been a little bit suppressed nationwide just because there's another NFL game for them to compete with. So um, I'm fine with it this year being on that traditional day uh, of Thanksgiving. But I think going forward, the best thing possible is just try to find a standalone spot in that weekend, maybe on, on that Friday that's not competing with some of the other big SEC rivalry games like um, Alabama and, and Auburn or, you know, even, you know, looking at like Florida, Florida State, uh, you know, any anything like that, try to move away. And then I think that's a good move by the SEC. So then you can dominate that whole weekend. You've got the Egg Bowl with Lane Kiffin in it. You've got maybe Texas and Texas A&M on Friday. And then you can go with the, the full gamut of rivalry games on, on Saturday in the in the coming season. So that, that's my take on it. But o- overall, I'm just excited to see that it's back. And like you mentioned from the top, online bickering is over. The, the <laughs> results on the field are going to be what tell the tale of this rivalry. I got goosebumps just thinking about that game. So, uh, Joe, thank you so much for the time. Joe Cook, Inside Texas. Before you go, can you tell my audience how can they follow you and how can they find your work? Yeah, head to InsideTexas.com. We're the Longhorn site on the On3 network. So you get uh, every all the coverage of Texas Longhorn sports as well as the great things On3 provides. I'm at Twitter uh, at JosephCook89, and we're on ins- at Inside Texas, no spaces or anything on basically ev- every other platform you got. So come and check us out. Great spot for a uh, Longhorn discussion. And of course, On3 is a great home for, for any SEC fan as well. Hey, buddy, this beer's for you, Mike, and Cousin Shane. That SEC podcast loves the Pirate, and the Pirate loves that SEC podcast. Hail State.